So we thank you for skillful musicians, skillful singers, and hard work. We thank you for those assembled here today to join with the choir for a much bigger choir, a choir of your praise. Lord, we thank you for glimpses of your glory shown to us in others, in this creation, in your provision for us even this morning, your watch over us in the middle of the night. Lord, we thank you how you've shown yourself glorious and great supremely in your son, Jesus. He took on humility and flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, though it was glory that was veiled in flesh. He was righteous. He preached and taught the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom. He died in the place of sinners and was raised on the third day. And so, Lord, we rejoice in that today. We celebrate it with shouts, with loud singing, with claps, with arms raised as an expression of lauding you because our hearts laud you and we want it to escape out of our hearts and into our bodies. It needs release. And so we're a people eager to praise you um, with heart and soul, mind and strength. Be glorified as we look into your word this morning, Lord, to show us more of Jesus and to show us the worth of the resurrection and the, the victory of the resurrection, the power of it, its glory, its personal touches, we could say, what it means for us, what it means for each of us in here. Lord, it means some scary things, as we'll see, and it means some mighty, sweet things. So we pray we would see those things to Christ's glory by the power of your Spirit. We pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this is Passion Week, the end of Passion Week, as we sometimes call it. Other traditions might call it Holy Week. But it's a week to walk ourselves through the drama of the story, the story that led to the death and now the resurrection of Jesus. So last Sunday, we talked about the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and coming in as a king. He's making a kingly coronation, declaration, demonstration, and yet he does it not upon a regal horse, not a war horse, but a donkey, which shows us that he's a servant. Shows us that he comes in peace, shows that he comes in poverty, he comes in humility. And we saw that exemplified on Friday as we talked about the cross where Jesus bled and died. That's what was meant by the donkey. That's what was meant by the humility. That was what was meant by the servantry that he would come and he would die in the place of sinners. And not just die, but as we have sung already, as we know when we came in, He was raised. He was raised on Sunday. Turn to Luke 24, if you have a Bible with you. The end of Luke, Luke chapter 24, where we see three post-resurrection scenes, we could call them. Scenes after Jesus' resurrection, him bumping into people on purpose, of course. Three different scenes, one in the morning, another in the afternoon, and then a third in the evening. I want to read at least from two of them, and explain the other, just so we see what's going on here. Then we'll take time to size these 
these scenes up to analyze them. Scene one is mourning at the tomb, Sunday morning. Look at verse one of chapter 24. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men, two angels, suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to the women, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee? He said, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And then they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the 11, 11 apostles and to all the rest, the rest of the disciples. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they wouldn't believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. The women at first are afraid, and then they believe, and they tell. But the apostles don't get it. They don't believe the women and their report about the angel and the empty tomb. They think it's nonsense. Peter, it says, marveled at what he saw. He goes to the tomb, and it is empty. He sees the wrappings laying there. What does it mean that he marveled at what happened? Well, it can either mean that he instantly believed. He got it, and, and he was happy. He was excited. He marveled like with awe and amazement and excitement. Or it could mean marveling that he was perplexed. That he was confused. The word can be translated either way in the original Greek. I think it's the latter. I think Peter here doesn't get exactly what this is all about. I think he's perplexed. He's scratching his head. He's trying to figure out what's going on. The second scene, the afternoon scene, someplace else, out of town. Two men are walking on the road to Emmaus and they're disciples of Jesus And they're sad, they're broken because Jesus is dead. Their hope was in Jesus. They thought, it says that they would, that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And they mean by redeem Israel, he would be the one to rescue Israel from Roman tyranny. That he would be a political redeemer, a military redeemer. He he would lead God's people into freedom, political, geopolitical freedom. But he's dead. And then Jesus walks alongside of them on the road. They don't know it's Jesus in this story. Jesus asks them what's wrong. They explain. And Jesus says in verse 25, Oh, you foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer, the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter his glory. And then as they go down the seven-mile walk towards Emmaus, Jesus tells them from the Old Testament these spots that pointed to him that were really foreshadows of him and why he did what he did and how those Old Testament prophecies hundreds of years before Jesus were fulfilled in Jesus' life and in his death and in his resurrection. So he goes into their house and eats a meal with them, and as he eats a meal with them, 
they see who it is. They realize who this is. And then Jesus departs. He departs. And look at verse 32. They say our hearts were burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, explaining the scriptures to us. And then these two come and find the rest of the disciples at a disciple's house. This is the third scene. The third scene is evening in a disciple's house. Look at verse 36. While they were telling these things, he, Jesus, himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. They were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? It's I, myself. Touch me. See, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. We'll stop there and then look at a little bit more of the end of the the chapter here in a bit. Those are the three scenes. I want to kind of analyze them in three different ways. The reality of the resurrection, the nature of the resurrection, and the meaning of the resurrection. And then when we get to the meaning of the resurrection, just so you don't think it's done when it's not yet done, the sermon, uh, I have five things of different meaning for the resurrection. So reality, nature, and meaning, and then five different meanings that we'll talk about. The reality of the resurrection. Is it real? These are nice little stories, but are they true? Did they really happen? Is this record reliable? I believe it is. I believe he really did rise from the dead. Uh, No surprise, right? I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to believe that. Although you'd be surprised, some preachers don't. I do believe it, not just based on faith, not just based on it's written here in Scripture. That's a, a big part of it. I trust Scripture, even though that sounds like circular reasoning. I believe Scripture because I believe Scripture. So let me give you some other reasons that aren't so circular in their reasoning. Let's think through this together. Let's see, because this is a mixed audience, right? I mean, a lot of folks come to a church on, on, on Easter who don't believe much about it, uh, don't really practice it, don't follow Christ. And we're glad that you're here. You're so welcome to be here. Uh, but let's talk about whether the resurrection really happened and whether we can believe it to be so. I think one reason for believing the resurrection to be true is the nature of these accounts. They're peculiar. Here's how they're peculiar. The first people to witness the resurrection are women. And you say, "Uh uh-huh. Right, ladies? You say, that's right. In first century times, though, here's a surprising thing. It, It wouldn't be a great way to argue your case to say, the women saw him. Now, don't throw your high heels at me, please. Uh, In first century times, women weren't allowed to testify in a court of law. Now, we know that's not right. I'm not saying it's good. But the disciples here, as they record the history of the resurrection and the experiences of the resurrection afterwards, they have women being the eyewitnesses. That's very countercultural. If you're making this stuff up, You don't begin with, we know it's true, the ladies told us. That's fine today. 
right? There's no gender issue about the validity of witness. But in their day, there was. It's odd. They say that they were the first to see it because I think they were. Also, almost all of the others, the disciples, the apostles, are quick to doubt. They're slow to believe. You have the apostles calling the women's testimony nonsense in verse 11. Nonsense! If you're making this up, you're trying to birth a movement, a religious, philosophical, worldview movement. You don't say our 11 pillars, the 11 guys, the board of Christianity, at first thought it was nonsense. I mean, nonsense is a harsh word, isn't it? It's a heavy word. Peter is perplexed about the empty tomb. Even when he sees it, he sees it and he doesn't get it. At least I don't think. And think about this, too. The accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all recording the resurrection and having some resurrection stories, post-resurrection stories, they're all diverse and yet consistent. They don't just copy from each other. Each has a little bit more of the story that the other ones didn't. But yet you can put them together for a, a holistic picture of what's going on here at the end of these books. Diverse yet consistent. I think the accounts record mysterious, unexplainable things and yet very simple things, which sounds to me like just eyewitness record. Remember the two men on the road to Emmaus, they're there with Jesus in the house, and once they realize it's him, it says he vanished. Now, it doesn't say it went poof, but that's the, that's the image I get in my head, right? It doesn't say that there was a noise when Jesus disappeared. That's what I hear in my head. He was there, and then poof, he's gone. He vanished, it says. He just disappeared. What does that mean? Where did he go? How did he do that? What was he trying to say? Why didn't he just say, all right, see you guys, got to go? I don't know. And they don't explain it. Luke doesn't explain it to us. What's that tell us? I think it means that this is just a historical record. There are things they don't get. And yet there are simple things too, like he asked for some fish. They gave him some fish, some broiled fish, in fact. Why broiled? Well, it doesn't matter. That's what we had. I'm just telling you a historical part. I don't know. It's broiled fish. That's all I know. That's what he had. I thought maybe you'd want to know. <laughs> Do you see how that's very simple? It sounds like it has the smell of first-hand eyewitnesses who saw this. I don't know. All I know is we ate with them. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 10. He's preaching and talks about the resurrection. God raised him up on the third day, and he showed himself to all the people, not to all the people, but to some of the witnesses that God beforehand chose. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. I mean, it's just Peter saying, all I know is I ate with him. We had a couple of meals together. I, I saw him. We actually ate together. First-hand witnesses. Other indications that the resurrection, I think, is true are, are these. The news, the belief in the resurrection spread quickly. Historians who aren't Bible historians, like Josephus in the first century, Josephus tells us that this news and belief in this news of the resurrection spread quickly. And it spread quickly in a very hostile environment. 
Remember, the crowd had just been yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Jerusalem was not for him. Jerusalem, by the time he was crucified, was against Jesus and against the the disciples. Remember, Peter, you're one of them, right? I know you. You're from his hometown. You sound just like him. I remember you were with him, weren't you? He denies the Lord three times. You see, the people are riled up against this Jesus, and a movement starts to spread about following the one who is raised from the dead. Oh, news about that, belief in that, spreading in a hostile environment wouldn't come too easily unless it was real. The disciples are willing to die for this belief, willing to die for something they made up. I don't think so. Some people believe that. Some people believe that the disciples removed the body and then went around saying, he rose from the dead and we saw him. We know. They laughed to themselves and went away and, and then died? And then they died for this? I don't know. Other people think, well, the women just went to the wrong tomb. It was a, 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 a case of mistaken tombs. Really, this whole thing of Christianity just got birthed out of an accident, a mistaken tomb? They went to the wrong one? You know, if you go to a storage unit, they all look the same. You can very easily go up to the wrong one. But your key tells you this is the wrong one, right? You open it up and you go, oh, this isn't it. This is someone else's stuff, maybe, if even the key worked. And then you'd go find the right one. Really, this whole movement got birthed with a, a case of mistaken tombs? Wouldn't someone say, hey, ladies, no, 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 not that one. That one's not used yet. That's the one. Well, of course they would. Well, one view is that the Romans or the Jews removed the body because they had heard so much about Jesus and a resurrection that they took the body before the disciples would take the body. Yeah, okay, maybe that's a case. Maybe that's the case, but... When the disciples start saying that he's raised from the dead, wouldn't either the Romans or the Jews, whoever actually took the body, say, "Uh uh-uh, we got the body right here, look. They don't. I mean, eventually, the alternatives begin to be so far off that you begin to think, well, maybe it was the miraculous. That's the reality of the resurrection. Secondly, the nature of the resurrection The nature of the resurrection, by that I mean it's shocking. It's shocking. It's either shockingly strange or shockingly scary or shockingly saving and sovereign and victorious. I think we're all comfortable with Easter, right? You're here, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I have a feeling you're pretty okay with Easter. You're here. You know, we we like doing the Easter thing, the Easter bunny, the the big meal afterwards. Anytime we can have an excuse to do Thanksgiving for in the same year, we like to do that, which that's what Easter dinner is. Anytime we can put a clip-on tie in a five-year-old boy, we love to do that. (laughs) That's fun. Maybe you're even okay with a little religion, going to church. You you don't want to maybe think hard about what it means and if Jesus is real and if he really rose from the dead and what that means for when you die. Or maybe you are okay with Easter because you have thought about 
some of the theology here. Maybe you've read a couple of books on Jesus. And maybe you've come to the belief that Jesus didn't rise from the dead bodily, physically. Maybe you've come to believe that classic liberal view that says that these resurrection stories kind of embody a resurrection hope, a resurrection spirit. And really what they teach us is new beginnings, new life, starting over. God is a God of second chances, that kind of thing. Or maybe even that they represent Jesus still alive in spirit. He lives on in our hearts as we remember him, think about him, and and pray to God. I think we're all very comfortable with Easter. Maybe we shouldn't be. Look at the emotions of the disciples. We can trace this through. Look at verse 5. There's an emotion there. The women were terrified. Look at verse 11. There, the apostles have doubt. They call it nonsense. Strong doubt, if they're calling it nonsense. Verse 12, Peter is confused. Even though it says marveling, we think it means confused. Verse 17, sadness. You've got sadness on the part of these two disciples before they realize it's Jesus who's walking with them. And verse 32, look at that. Their hearts are burning within them once they realize it's Jesus and they realize what he said about the word, the Bible, and how it relates to his life and death and resurrection. They have holy heartburn, you could call it. Verse 37, once Jesus shows up to this upper room with the disciples, they're startled and frightened. And then in verse 41, it turns to joy and amazement. All these different emotions. What a broad array of responses to Jesus, but none of them is indifferent. None of them think that Jesus and his resurrection is just nice. It's not nice. It's not cute. It's not curious. It's either shockingly scary or shockingly saving. No one's yawning here. It's not nice. Easter is nice. We celebrate Easter. You could say, it's a nice Easter. I don't like the word nice. My grandma used to tell me that I shouldn't play hockey when I was a kid. She used to say, you're going to get hurt playing hockey. Please don't play hockey. Do something nice and safe like figure skating. (laughs) I don't like safe. I don't like nice. And I don't think Jesus does either. No one's yawning at this resurrection. No No one thinks this is something small. We need something big. We need something awesome. We need something decisive and transformative. You see the two disciples as they're walking down the road to Emmaus. Remember, they think the problem is a political one. And so Jesus' death is problem for the political battle that's ahead. They think that he died. And when he died, their hopes died. That's always the case with with people who are, well, leaders. You know, the one thing all leaders in history have in common, they died. That would be a great leadership book, right? Nice and short. 
Page one, what do all leaders have in common? Page two, they died. Page three, the end. I have it copyrighted. Don't steal my idea, please. No. No, you see, the one thing all great leaders have in common is that they died And some are better leaders than others, but none of them can live forever. That's why the Old Testament ups and downs of the kings of Israel is so fascinating because when you got a bad one, he can't die fast enough. And when you got a good one, well, he's going to die. How good can it be? He's going to die. And who knows what the next one will be like? You see, we need a leader who can do more than get a lot done before his death. We need a leader who can conquer death itself. That's what Jesus came to do. That's why he's so different than any other leader. He lives forever. He died in order to conquer the greatest enemy, death. That's the nature of the resurrection. The third here is the meaning of the resurrection. Let me give you five things that show us the meaning of the resurrection, what it means for us. The first, the resurrection means that Jesus' word is true. That's what it means. It means that his word is true because he predicted all this to happen. Remember, the, the angels first said that to the two women. Sorry, to the several women. Those two angels said, he said he was gonna die. And he said he was going to be raised up on the third day. Back in chapter 9 in Luke, that happens, where Jesus predicts his own death and his resurrection. Again, in chapter 18, he he predicts his death and his resurrection. It all tells us that what he said was reliable and true. His resurrection means the word is reliable. So we can go now to what he said and see what he said and trust it because, because he rose from the dead. No one else can say that. No one in history. Secondly, the resurrection means that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord and judge and king. It's God's exaltation of his son who is God himself. When he's raised from the dead, it shows us that he is God, that he is king, that he is Messiah, that he will be this world's judge. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul is preaching, really more like lecturing, uh, to philosophers. And so he's beginning to tell them, I went through your city this week and I saw all the shrines to the different gods. And I noticed that one shrine that you had that's to the unknown God, he says. You, you see, they wanted to kind of cover all their bases and so they had a, a, you know, an a statue, a shrine for the God of the sun and the God of the moon and the God of money and the God of business. And I don't know, what if there's one we don't know about? Let's call this shrine, a shrine to the unknown God. So Paul comes and says, I want to tell you about the God you don't know about. And he tells us he's a man. Listen, Acts 17 Verse 30, Paul says, having overlooked the times of ignorance in the past, God has been very patient here, he's now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. They should turn themselves in. They should submit themselves to God. Because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed. This man he proved to us and to all men. By raising him from the dead. 
Paul says. Paul says here, that unknown God, he's a man, Jesus, he's God, he's the judge. Proof that he's the judge and that he's God is that God raised him from the dead. Again, the resurrection is so far from cute or nice or irrelevant. It's scary. This is scary if it's true. Third, the third meaning of the resurrection is that the resurrection means Jesus has the answer to life and death. And here's the not-so-scary part. Here's the hopeful part. Jesus has the answer to life and death. That's what his teaching has been about. And his teaching is simply this. We die because of sin. He came sinless to die in our place, to take our punishment. That's why he had to die. It wasn't, oh, you guys did that to me. I'll show you. Three days later, I'll show you that it, it didn't do anything to me. It just slowed me down for a day and a half or two days or so there. I, I'll show you. You thought you had the upper hand, but I have resurrection powers. No. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying he was intent to die. He was going to the cross. He was going to Jerusalem to suffer and to suffer specifically in the place of our suffering. He died for sins. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless and we're still in our sins. You see the connection between resurrection and sins? What he's saying here is that the inverse is what's true. Jesus did rise from the dead, and therefore those who believe that aren't still in their sins. They're not still covered by their sins, but instead Jesus took their sins. And like the Psalms say, he buried him in the depths of the sea, and he separated us from our sins as the east is from the west. My sins are on the other side of the world. I don't care. I can't see him. I probably won't get in trouble for him. And how much more so in our day, uh, in their day, when that was written? There was no internet. There was no long-distance phone calls. No fax. No global postal system. He would separate our sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, I, I want to show you at the end of Luke 24 here some verses, and then we'll back up to Luke 18. It's important here. This is the crux of this weekend and the crux of, of what Christians believe, what we think is our eternal hope. In verse 47, you have part of the section here, a summary of Jesus' teaching from Jesus' own lips as he's leaving the disciples. That Christ would suffer, verse 46, and rise again on the third day. Verse 47, that repentance and forgiveness, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in all the nations. Forgiveness of sins. That forgiveness, we believe here, is received through repentance and faith. Two sides of one coin. Repentance being our need for Christ. The trouble part. The, 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 the negative message that there's trouble. There's a problem here. We're in our sins and judgment is coming. Death and hell are the judgment for our sins. Repentance is that acknowledgement. That sorrow-filled ache of what our sin cost and where we're headed. 
But faith is the other side of the coin, the positive side of the coin that sees Christ is the answer for what we need to repent over. He is the substitute righteousness, the righteousness that we didn't earn because he took the sin that wasn't his and he paid for it. Now look at Luke 18, as I said, to to see this illustrated. I think maybe the parable that sums up Jesus' teaching the most is this one. We're going to look at it next week. Now, let me encourage you, if you're visiting with us, I say this every Easter and usually at Christmas. Uh, Easter time, we have maybe 400 people or so uh, more than we normally do on an average Sunday. And again, I've said this already, you might not be a Christian or uh, you may not yet be in a church, you maybe just recently became a Christian, um, or maybe you'd say you're a Christian, but you've been a long way away from church for a long time now. Um, you're welcome to be here. We're so glad that you're here. Just keep coming. And I don't mean just keep coming, like you weren't welcome unless you keep coming, but just let me encourage you. Just come, come next week. Come listen to Luke 18 as we study that and, and sing. This is a church where we believe. God blesses the simplest things that he's given us. And so we don't have any um, gizmos. We don't have any gimmicks. Uh, It's just singing and talking about the Bible and praying together and then getting to know each other and figuring out how to live it out outside of here. So come next week and keep coming. If uh, you don't have a church home, don't let Easter just be a, a bunny hop in. Let it be something more, the start of something. Look at Luke 18. We'll look at this next week. Verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Here's the parable he told. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One is a religious leader who's diligent, a Pharisee. He's disciplined. And the other is a tax collector, a famous sinner. The Pharisee stood and was praying like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler or unjust, an adulterer. I'm not even like that tax collector right here faking it at the prayer wall. Surely he's praying for more money or something. Instead, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Jesus says, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He couldn't even look up to pray. He knew his unworth. He was beating on his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Which one's going to heaven? Jesus says, I tell you this, this man, the tax collector, the sinner, this man went to his house justified, declared righteous, forgiven, accepted, rather than the other. The religious guy, the disciplined guy, the sacrificial guy, the famously godly guy isn't going to heaven. The famous sinner who knows his unworth and sees his need for a savior, he's the one that is being redeemed and saved. That's who Jesus came to forgive. Back to the meaning of the resurrection, though. Those five things we're talking about. The fourth is this. The resurrection means that God has forever united himself to his creation. Jesus became a man. Jesus is flesh and blood. He has hands and feet. He says, touch me, in verse 39. He eats. Why all this emphasis about him eating? Because they think he's a ghost. He's not a ghost. 
It's not a spiritualized resurrection, and it's not a spiritualized man. Christians don't believe uh, what Gnostics do, that the flesh is inherently bad. And at the end of the age, the greatest thing will be we get ripped from these bodies and we're no longer uh, you know, tied down to, to this bad, sinful thing called the body. We believe instead that God will renew our bodies. And Jesus Christ was the first one to get that renewed heavenly body. New earth, new heaven. It came down in Jesus and his resurrection And we have a hint there of what's to come for us who believe. Which means that there's meaning now in life. Because of the resurrection, food makes sense. Jesus eats. Because of the resurrection, life is good. Bodies, yes, are still decaying. But God has a plan to renew them and restore them to more than what they were before the fall. God cares about bodies. He cares about creation. God has forever united himself to his creation. And the first sign of that came in Jesus and his resurrection. And the last meaning of the resurrection is there at the end of Luke 24, in verse 47, that this message should be proclaimed. You see that? Repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, including this one, to all places, including those that you're in. So if you're not a Christian, please understand, Christians are supposed to talk about this to you. That's what I'm doing right now. That's what your friend probably has done to you before. They may not have done it so well. You know, they may have had sort of the sophistication of a a gorilla with a daisy, you know, trying to communicate something very delicate and something personal to you, and it came across as a club. Uh, Sorry for that. But the message isn't wrong. It's not necessarily a, a a reflection of the message. And we don't think it's wrong to proclaim. We think it's good. We think it's inevitable. You, You proclaim. You talk about what you're excited about. And so if we really believe that what Jesus said is true and we believe that because he rose from the dead and we believe that he is Lord and we believe that he has the answer to life and death and he's given it to us, if we believe that he has forever united himself to his creation and now gives us sense about stuff and things and life and death and hope beyond just death, hope through death, then how can we keep quiet about this Christian how can you keep quiet about this so whether it's praise to your family praise about God in Jesus to your family those around you maybe fellow Christians whether it's witness to those who don't yet know him it springs from the same heart we speak of that which we've seen and heard And like the apostles there in Acts 4, we can't help but speak the things that we've heard and seen. Is that true of you? If not, look longer at Jesus. You don't don't see him as you should yet. Keep looking until God does his work of blossoming in your heart and sun shining in your soul till it seeks escape in words of praise and words of 
witness. Let's pray. Pray with me if you would. Lord, we pray we would rejoice in the cross. We would find our victory, our hope in the resurrection. Thank you for a risen Savior, not a dead one. Nevertheless, we thank you for the death of Jesus, which was in our place. If he had not died, Lord, we we would forever and ever. We believe that he died in our place. We believe that he rose victoriously to let us know that death was more than just a death or more than just an accident, more than something unfortunate, more even than just a lesson on how to love people or turn the other cheek or to receive hurt and harm. It was our hurt and harm that he received and the punishment that should be ours fell on him. Thank you. Thank you that his resurrection tells us that it worked. That you have shown him to be victorious, Lord, and a king above every king. A name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is king. To the glory of you, Father. So help us now to sing of his work for us and his victory for us where he is now, seated at your right hand. Help us to sing like those who know it should. You are great and greatly to be praised. Amen.